Well, good morning. Elders this morning are incredibly excited to launch our new series. Um, series that walks us through the gospel, the gospel of Matthew. It's been a few years since Moran Park has actually walked through a biblical book. If you were here pre-COVID, you may have remembered that we walked through 1 Corinthians and then a portion of 2 Corinthians as well. Um, and then moved on to more of a topical series at that point. You may wonder why we might decide to have a series that walks us through an entire uh, book of the Bible. Especially Matthew. It's the third longest book in the New Testament, um, next to Luke and Acts. <clears throat> why would we do that? Why would uh, we take the time to walk through a whole Bible book? <clears throat> well, it helps us as the elders to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. We preach through a book, there's going to be texts that aren't going to be our favorites. There's going to be texts that aren't going to be, there are going to be texts that are going to be difficult. There's going to be texts that aren't fun. There's going to be texts that aren't our favorite necessarily. But all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, says 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, I love the Psalms. Not always getting into Leviticus. Maybe I should. It's not a favor, right? We have our natural inclinations toward the books that we love, and we keep, if we're not careful, we keep going back to those books, but we never read uh, other texts of Scripture. And so we, if the elders don't do this, we actually leave you with gaps in your understanding of Jesus and uh, our God. We want to give you the whole counsel of God, and this is one way that we can, we can do, we can try to do that. So we'll preach and teach through Matthew until the Lord takes us out of Matthew, and uh, we'll sit with those hard texts. And of course, there'll be a lot of favorites as well. So what a joy and a thrilling ride that we're going to be on. Who knows what the Lord wants to do and where he's going to take us. We will have to see, won't we? So buckle up and hang on. Why did we choose a gospel for our new series? Central figure of the Christian faith is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. Unarguably, Jesus Christ is the most important historical figure of the Western world, arguably of the whole world. And before gospels, our narrative presentations of the life, ministry, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have no other documents that provide us such a rich and explicit um, and complete portrait of his life. If we didn't have the Gospels, we wouldn't have Jesus. And so the Gospels rightly take in the Christian church a center stage and they have always taken center stage in the life and ministry of the Christian church over the past 2,000 years. Why Matthew in particular? Elders talked about it, prayed, and that's the one that surfaced to the, that one, that's the one that came to the top. There was no magic formula. There was no specific reason, uh, really, like that Matthew like, addressed certain topics that we just felt like we needed to, to hammer home for us. That's the one that the Lord guided us to. Simple as that. So... Um, no profound uh, rationale there. 
It just seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit that Matthew was what we were supposed to do next. So these are the reasons why we're embarking on a series and a biblical book and why we chose the gospel and specifically why we chose the gospel of Matthew for our study. Well, what can we say about the gospel of Matthew? Um, This morning I'm going to provide a brief overview of the gospel. We won't actually get into the first text until next week um, when Brother Al comes and and, uh, preaches on the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Fascinating text that we normally don't know what to do with and we skip over but is unbelievably important for the gospel of Matthew and for us. So we'll have to see what Al says for us next week. Um, In our introduction, we should probably address a few basic questions about the book. Um, Authorship, date, and original audience is things I would like to talk about briefly uh, next. Let's just go ahead and jump right in. We have to remember that Matthew was not written to us. For us as scripture, but we're not the original audience. It was not written to us. We're reading somebody else's mail, right? We have to remember that Jesus and scripture is historical revelation. You know, we get our Bibles today and it's a nice little package. We can open, pop it open, and it can feel like this esoteric book that just kind of dropped from heaven and is timeless. Its message is timeless. But the message was spoken in and through people, real people, who lived at various times and in various historical situations. Matthew is no different. Matthew was written by somebody at a date, sometime, for someone, somewhere, who, right? All the earliest and best manuscripts, ancient manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Matthew have at the top or in the front a title or a header that says the Gospel according to Matthew or the Gospel of of Matthew. Any fuller manuscripts that we have have this. This was standard in the Roman Empire for any major written work to have a title or a header and it indicated authorship. So while many have debated whether Matthew is actually from Matthew, the book itself actually says this is by Matthew. There, is, there was never any other option. There was never any given other alternative. This book was always understood to be from Matthew. Well, who's Matthew? Matthew was one of the original 12 disciples that followed Jesus. He's actually one of the more obscure of the disciples. We actually know almost nothing about him other than the fact that his, his alternate name was Levi and that he was a tax collector and that he was a Jew. Though all 12 of the original disciples were Jew. That will come back later and is important. It would be strange if somebody was going to write the Gospel of Matthew and claim who was not an apostle, or was not an eyewitness, or was not a disciple, an original disciple, to write it and want to claim apostolic authorship for it, to choose Matthew as the name that you would attach to it in order to give it apostolic authority. Matthew is basically a nobody. If you wanted to claim apostolic authority for this book, and you would 
probably choose the name of John, a little bit more famous, or Peter, like the head, the leadership of the 12, right? Or even James, those were the inner three. Those were the, those the ones that we know a lot more about uh, from the Gospels. You wouldn't choose Matthew. Who's Matthew? So this lends support to the argument that it is, in fact, from Matthew, the apostle, or Matthew, the disciple. Church history never deviated from this assertion and has always affirmed it. As early as the early 2nd century AD, we have evidence that the early church believed it was, in fact, from Matthew. We can't prove it with certainty, but Matthew's authorship is a strong and reasonable suggestion, as strong as any other, and is, in fact, the likeliest possibility. Why is that important and not just mere academic knowledge? I'll get to a little bit later toward the end of my message. In terms of date or time of writing, virtually all scholars agree that Matthew was probably written 30 to 45 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened about AD 30. So Matthew is probably somewhere written between AD 60, AD 75, AD 80, uh, somewhere toward the end of Matthew's life and some point where the earliest eyewitnesses are starting to die, are starting to die off. Um, we can't know for sure when it was written, but sometime in Matthew's, Matthew's life. If he was 20 years old when Jesus was crucified, he's 60, 70, or 80 by the time he's, he's writing the document. Who was the original audience? Who was this thing written for originally? Of course, it's for us today, and it's for the global church today as Christian scripture. But it wasn't originally written for us, of course. It was written to somebody else originally. It's written for the first century church. Can we say anything more specific? Yes. Matthew's profound interest in the temple, in the Old Testament scriptures and their fulfillment, his profound interest and debate with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish lead, religious leaders of the day, uh, his interest in Jesus as Messiah, all point toward a Jewish Christian audience. The Gospel of Matthew is a Jewish Gospel. It is the Jewish Gospel, written by a Jewish Christian for Jewish Christians to help them understand Jesus as the promised Messiah and how the community, the community that he founded is in fact the fulfillment of all is Old Testament Israel's hopes. The early Jesus movement started as a Jewish movement. They were all Jews. There were no, there were none of us. Gentiles. Fully Jesus, fully Jewish movement. And yet, even during Jesus' life, some Jews, maybe even a lot of Jews, began to reject Jesus, right? Some began to believe that he really was the Messiah, and they began to follow him. But already in his own lifetime, there were Jews that did not believe that he was the Messiah, and they rejected him. And the proof positive is that they eventually put him on the cross as a messianic pretender. If you needed any further proof that there was division, the person of Jesus caused division. Now, Matthew's audience reflects this division. 
where you have Jew, Jews who believed Jesus to be the Messiah and began to follow him, and he had Jews who began to, who didn't and rejected him as the Messiah and thought he was a false Messiah, a pretender, and um, began to persecute uh, the Christian, the fledgling Christian community. Matthew's gospel reflects this situation. Matthew's audience, says Mark Strauss, New Testament scholar, is a Jewish Christian community in conflict and debate with a larger unbelieving Jewish community. Both sides, the church and the synagogue, are claiming to be the true people of God. Both claim Israel's scriptures as their legacy. For Matthew's Jewish opponents, this fledgling movement represents heresy, followers of a false messiah. But for Matthew's Christian community, the prophecies have been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the true Messiah. So the Gospel of Matthew reflects this tension. Who are the true people of God? Is it the, is it the Jewish community who rejects Jesus as a false pretender, gone their own way, continue to, be, uh, continue to worship at the synagogue and wait for the Messiah? Or is Jesus really the Messiah and the community that he has founded is that the true Israel and the community through whom God is going to save the world? That's the question. And Jesus, Matthew's trying to answer that question and trying to show how Jesus is in fact the Messiah and how he fulfills all the Old Testament scriptures and how in and through him and in and through the community that he is forming God's mission to the world to save the world is going to be fulfilled and is coming to fruition. So not to bore you, but we've just kind of taken a brief look here at authorship, date, and original audience. Some things that we just kind of need to take a look at, I think, that help us to ground it and remind us that this is a historical document, that there's a two-step process when we interpret the Gospel of Matthew and we apply it to our lives, that there's what it meant then, right? And then what it means for us today. We have to do that wrestling and wrestling with the text and grappling with the text and trying to understand how what it meant then and then what it means for us today. That's a good reminder that God's word and revelation is historical revelation. Jesus was a real person. Matthew was a real person. These were real issues. So we've looked at those things, those questions. What makes Matthew different from the other three Gospels? What are its special emphasis? What's, what's Matthew's distinctives? I'm not going to get into all the details, but just do a brief, brief overview. But what makes Matthew Matthew? People who are new to the Christian faith or new to the Bible, when they open up the New Testament and they see there's not just one gospel, but there's four gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why four? Why not one? Wouldn't have been sufficient just to have one gospel. Apparently not. Each author provides a unique portrait of Jesus, an angle on Jesus. And apart from that four-fold portrait, apparently we wouldn't have all that we needed to know 
about Jesus. And each author does, in fact, have their own unique emphases, angles, themes that they want to emphasize about Jesus. They all had a point of view. And they're not contradictory, they're complementary, but they are distinctive in the, what they want to tell and share. Four portraits, four portraits, but one Jesus. All right, so what are some of Matthew's distinctives? Number one, Jesus wants to underst- Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is an authoritative teacher. Uh, Steve, if we can have that, that slide, that PowerPoint. The Gospel of Matthew is uniquely structured around five teachings or five discourses. The, the structure, of, of course, it's a story that goes from his birth to his uh, climaxes and his death and his resurrection, but the book itself is structured around five significant sections, teachings of Jesus, or discourses, we call it. Uh, the famous Sermon on the Mount, which we'll spend a good bit of time on, right? Uh, Mission to Israel, Parables of the Kingdom, Community Life and Discipline, uh, Signs of the End. And it goes, it goes back and forth between narrative and discourse. Narrative, discourse. Narrative and discourse until the book climaxes with the, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. So it provides a structural outline of the book or a frame to the book or a skeleton to the book. And it provides a good, a good pace What is Matthew doing with that? Why five? Some have said, well, maybe Jesus is like a new Moses, the new covenant Moses. Just like Moses had the five books of Torah, or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Jesus has his own Torah, uh, his five books. Eh, Maybe. Uh, I'm not convinced. Uh, But he does want to teach that Jesus is an authoritative teacher. He knows God's heart. He knows God's will. He knows... He knows the Torah, but he knows the inner, inner, the inner heart of the Torah. It's not just rules and regulations. He brings it to fulfillment. He brings out its full meaning. He brings it to its climax and culmination. Jesus, the authoritative teacher that is from God. What else? What else is another central emphasis of, of uh, of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you for that, Steve. We're good on that. The second one is the promise fulfillment theme. Promise fulfillment theme. Another central emphasis is that for Matthew, the Old Testament is huge, right? He's a Jew. He loves the Torah. He loves the prophets. He loves the Psalms. He loves his Bible. And he wants you to see, and he wants me to see, and he wanted his original audience to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of that those scriptures, that all the promises in the Old Testament are coming to their fulfillment, coming to their climax, are finding their, their end in him. So promise and fulfillment is huge for him. And he, among all four Gospels, is the one that quotes, quotes the Old Testament the most. Over and over again, he says something like, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he'll quote the Old Testament. Or this is what Isaiah says in fulfillment of what Isaiah says. Or this is what the Lord says in fulfillment of the prophecy that's found in Zechariah, the word of the Lord. That kind of language. He uses that explicitly, that formula. This, is what to, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, 
10 explicit times, at least another dozen times, Matthew quotes Scripture in a way that shows its fulfillment is coming, coming true in Jesus. And then there are literally dozens and dozens of allusions and echoes of other Old Testament texts that find or are finding their fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel. For example, uh, Matthew 1, 22, 23 all this took place, this is just one of the examples, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, fulfilling Isaiah chapter 7. So the fulfillment formula and the promised fulfillment scheme Matthew wants to understand that all the Old Testament scriptures are finding their culmination, are finding their fulfillment, are finding the epic story of scripture coming to its climax in this one person, in this long-awaited, promised Messiah, Mashiach. The reason for this emphasis throughout the gospel is not difficult to discern. Matthew believes Jesus to be the one who fulfills the epic story of Scripture and all the promises of the Old Testament. What else can we say? Jesus is authoritative teacher. That can be seen in the structure of the book. Uh, the promise fulfillment scheme is the second major emphasis of Matthew's gospel. Third major emphasis is Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the Christ. When you read Jesus Christ, Christ is just the English word that we get from Christos, the Greek word for, translates the Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed one. When you see Jesus Christ, Christ is not his second last name. It's his title. That's why in your New Testament it can be either Jesus Christ or Paul can say or others can say Christ Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. What is a Messiah? What was the Messiah? What did the Old Testament promise about a Messiah? Messiah was understood to be the long-awaited and promised king who would come through David's lineage, who would come through Israel and bring God's salvation. To the world. Mashiach, the anointed one, the king of Israel, and lord of the nations, the one who would save his people from their sins. That is what that one word means, all bundled up in that one word. And the crazy thing is that Jesus comes and he's rejected as that king, but he, because he's not acting in king in ways that kings do. No pomp and circumstance, right? No, no, no massive armies to come and destroy the Roman Empire and set them free from political oppression. He comes gentle and lowly, humble, looking like a nobody. Boy, were they wrong. Matthew, in fact, so loves Jesus as Messiah that he used several titles, not just Christ or Messiah, several titles as much as or more than any of the other Gospels to 
refer and underscore that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God. By the way, does not mean all the time, in fact, not most of the time, second person of the Trinity in the New Testament. It's a messianic title. We'll look at that. Son of God meant Messiah, Lord of the world, Son of Man, Son of David. Scary. You okay? I'm okay. All right. All these titles are messianic titles. They all come from the Old Testament and all have their respective meaning that Matthew wants to say is finding its fulfillment in this one person. Son of God, Son of David, Son of Man. Also in Matthew's Gospel, he's uh, Emmanuel. He's Wisdom. He's Suffering Servant of the Lord from Isaiah. And he is Kurios, Lord. All these are titles that Matthew loves to use about Jesus and trying to get you to grasp who this man is. Don't be fooled, he says. He looks like a nobody. But he's the one that you've been waiting for all your days. Finally, Jesus is authoritative teacher, promise fulfillment, Jesus is Messiah, King of, the, King of Israel, Lord of the nations. Finally, the Great Commission. Matthew's Gospel is distinctive in that it has the most explicit and, um, what's the word I want? Distinctive and obvious global mission that his disciples are to go on in light and in comparison to the other Gospels. Mark has almost nothing, but it's there. Luke and John both have Jesus preparing his disciples, his apostles, for mission at the end of the book. But Matthew is explicit. Because, you see, the Messiah is not merely king of Israel, but the Messiah was always going to be the Lord of the nations. When he's raised from the dead and sits at the right hand and all authority is given to him, it's time to get going. The mission has just begun. It's time to bring all the nations of the earth in to worship the one true God, to experience God's love, to experience God's salvation, to be set free from sin and death, the pall that has sat over the world for centuries, the misery of disease and fallen bodies and hopelessness. The time has come for God's people to go forth with the good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior. It reads like this, Matthew 28, 19, 20, very familiar to the evangelical Protestant church especially. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you, Emmanuel. I'm with you always to the end of the age until the job's done. So this is a distinctive of Matthew. 
Matthew understands what time it is. Messiah has come. He's died for our sins. He's died for the world. He loves everybody. It's time for the epic story to come to its climactic fulfillment. It's time for the nations to be gathered in to be invited to enjoy God's grace, God's love, and his Messiah. Come and find eternal life, the kingdom, the kingdom of the new heavens and new earth, the kingdom of the new creation, the kingdom of God, the kingdom, as it is in Matthew, of heaven. Jesus as authoritative teacher, promise and fulfillment. Jesus as Messiah, the Great Commission. These are some major emphases of the Gospel of Matthew that make it distinctive from the other Gospels. The other Gospels are just as loaded with their own special emphases, and they are exciting in their own right. Well, that suffices for now. How about in conclusion, what can we say? Chris, that was great. Uh, lots of good, good uh, information. Uh, why does that matter for my life uh, today? My troubles, my struggles. You have no idea what I did last night. Uh, you have no idea where I've been. You don't know the troubles I'm going through. Um, how, is this, how is this relevant? That's a very... Good question. Let me provide maybe two, two points of application. We talk about authorship and date to remind ourselves that Matthew, the disciple, Matthew, the gospel, provides incredibly early testimony from a very early disciple. We do thus have solid and reliable access to the historical figure of Jesus, to his actual life, to his actual teachings. Remember, Jesus is not some sort of timeless Buddha. He actually lived in the first century. He actually died a bloody death on a Roman cross under Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, A.D. 30, a real historical figure. And if it hadn't been for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we'd have nothing from his life. But we do have something from his life. We do have Matthew. We do have somebody who was an eyewitness and who was there. This should provide us assurance that when we read the Gospel of Matthew, we are in touch with early historical testimony. Matthew's words provide us with assurance that in the Gospel, he writes, we are drawing near to the real Jesus as people experienced him then. When we are reading Matthew, we are encountering Jesus.
And then finally then, related to that, I want to say that there's a lot of confusion out there about who Jesus is. Jesus the Republican. Jesus the Democrat. Jesus the one who hates gays. Jesus the one who loves gays. Jesus the self-help guru. Jesus the nutritionist. Fact. I saw the book. Mm. Jesus the Zen master. Jesus the social justice warrior. Jesus the patriarchist. Jesus the feminist. Jesus the white male. Jesus the black male. Jesus the racist. Jesus the one who makes me rich. Jesus my boyfriend. Jesus my BFF. Jesus is misunderstood today. Yeah? He's been conscripted for service in many causes and is used for many personal agendas, many of which have nothing to do with who he is or what he came to do. So I offer you a warm invitation. I offer you to come and see who it is that Jesus is and to hear for yourself what he said and what he did and why. I warmly invite you, the elders warmly invite you, to sit with us in the Gospel of Matthew over the next weeks and to see perhaps for the first time Jesus as he truly was and Jesus as he truly is. I can't wait. Meeting him in this way may just change your life forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Gospel of Matthew. Thank you in your kind providence for preserving this historical record of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. That we could have it today. That we could read it for ourselves. That we could see who Jesus claimed to be and from there make a decision for ourselves of what we will do with you and what we will do with him. Thank you for this book. Lord, thank you that we can look again at the Gospel of Matthew and your portrait that you've given to us. Thank you for four Gospels, four portraits, one Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would Blow your spirit afresh among us and help us to see again who Jesus, who you truly are. Help us to peel away the crust that has accumulated on you that is not actually of you because of our culture. Help us to see you again afresh for the first time. We love you. We need you. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.